My goal this morning in ministering God's word to you is to help us find a way forward. A way that is marked by comfort and encouragement, but simultaneously by a sense of challenge. Challenge to our consciences, I hear. Challenges to our consciences and something of a provoking of our of our mission for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And to, and to help us move forward, I, I want to invite you to the Old Testament book of Jonah. You probably didn't do devotions in Jonah this week, but it is a part of the Bible. And it is one that I think is particularly relevant for our moment. And what I'm going to do is very unusual here. I'm going to take the time to read the entire book of Jonah so that we see through this historical record of an actual event some 25, 2700 years ago, the heart of God for all people. Please follow as I read the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the gods or the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Was it your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, 
and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to, to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O oh, Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish and when God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of God. This is a story, brothers and sisters and friends, not about a humongous fish. It's a story about a very merciful God and a very reluctant, racist prophet. And it is intended to call all of us to a very different perspective on God and on people and on people who are different from us and on their children and on the mission to which we are called in this world. I was already planning on preaching this message this Sunday. Uh, started prepping for it two or three weeks ago. And then the events of this week happened. It was clear to me that the Lord has something for us this morning. Something we need to hear. Let me give you a little background here. Nineveh was not a nice place. It was the capital city of Assyria, a godless, non-Jewish nation given to invading and destroying nations, including Israel. To the Jewish mind of that day, Nineveh represented unclean Gentiles, racially different and inferior people. Nineveh represented threat, it represented danger, it represented opposition, oppression, and enemy. And so Israel hated Nineveh. If, if we define racism, as Webster's Dictionary does, as a belief that some races are better than others, the people of Israel, including Jonah, was a nation of racists. Jewish and Jonah racism tended to be rooted in two seed beds. First of all, the Jewish people of that day thought that Nineveh was worse than them. Nineveh was more wicked. Nineveh was more sinful. Nineveh was, was inferior to them. So when, when God came to Jonah and said, I want you to go to Nineveh and warn them of my coming judgment so that as the story makes very clear to us, I can save them from that judgment. Jonah didn't want anything to do with it. Jonah said, in effect, I don't want those people saved. 
I don't want those people forgiven. I don't want those people on an equal status with me. If, if, you, if you think about Jonah and Israel and the nations that surrounded them back in those days, Jonah, Jonah was being asked here as a, as a good Jew, as a good prophet, to go to this pagan and inferior nation and tell them the truth about God. It would be something like asking a 20th century Jewish believer to go to Nazi Germany and, and bring the gospel to them. It, it would be like telling today a hunted and harassed Christian in Syria or Iraq to take the gospel to an ISIS stronghold. It, it would be similar to asking an African-American man to take the gospel to a KKK community. There were deep, deep roots of hatred, of racism, of cynicism, partly because Jonah thought he was better than others, but also because Israel was in a place of privilege. You see, Israel had received the word of God. Israel had received the promises of God. Israel had been given the declaration that through them, the Messiah, the Savior of the world would come. They had been chosen. They had been blessed. They had been loved by God. And the privilege had gone to their heads. It filled them with pride. The Bible makes it clear, Old and New Testament, that privileges made the Jewish people feel superior, feel they were special, feel they deserved certain things, and they were happily and comfortably distant from everyone else. The, the Jews had privilege. Jonah had privilege, and they didn't want to lose it. You see, they had taken, this is how privilege works. They had taken real privileges. What's a privilege? It's an undeserved blessing, an undeserved opportunity. They had taken privileges and by presumption had, and pride had turned it into privilege, into a badge of honor a badge of superiority, a sense and assumption of entitlement, a place and of power and prejudice. We need to talk about privilege. We just do. In every age, in every place, privilege happens. It does. And when it does, it is spiritually dangerous for everyone, for everyone. But the problem with privilege is that very often when you have it, you don't know you have it. You don't recognize it. You don't, you don't see it. You assume it and presume upon it. And so it is, by and large, there are some exceptions, but by and large, in our day, in our country, in our world, White Americans are in a place of privilege. We've had all kinds of privileges, undeserved blessings and opportunities, powers and protections, systems and structures and resources for life 
and recourse when we're in trouble that are ours just naturally and just because we were born into them that do not belong to others though they have every right to them that come to us because we happen to be the majority and the result is that by and large whites do life in our culture walking a gradual downhill slope while many others do life struggling uphill struggling against the privileges the more i engage with my african-american friends and brothers and sisters the more obvious all of this becomes to me something i didn't see before and the more impossible it is to deny and the more aware I become that to deny it is to perpetuate it it is to continue it as a pastor and as your brother in Christ I do worry here about two things um, I worry about excessive white guilt perhaps over things that we were not aware of, we weren't thinking about, we weren't conscious of, but are now conscious of, and how do you process that? And, and I worry as a pastor and brother and Lord about excessive black or African-American self-righteousness in terms of turning the table and condemning whites. Let's, let's face it, brothers and sisters, Privilege and all that goes with that is not really a white thing or a Jewish thing. It's a human thing. It's a human thing. The thing about privilege is that all of us have it to some degree. We all have it compared to someone in the world. We all have more, more freedom, more opportunity, more right. The, 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 the incline is not as steep for us as it is for others. We, we all have privilege to some degree and if we have it most likely we come to think of it as our right to have and 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 we don't want to lose it and we don't want to presume on it and or we do presume on it and we often abuse it and if we don't have as much privilege as others we want it and we envy it and if we happen to get more of it then we hold on to it and we don't want to lose it and then we abuse it and it's a human issue it's a human issue, but it is an issue. Whether we have privilege or not, it produces smugness and pride, a blindness to other people's condition, injustice and inequity, superiority, ignorance of, indifference to others. It produces envy, doesn't it? It produces covetousness. It produces rage and we could go on and on, pretty much every evil imaginable has been produced by these things. And so, so what do we see? We see that Jonah and Nineveh was a small picture of a human problem. We see that Jonah and Nineveh is a miniature version of a giant issue. It's a still frame that has been cut out of or sliced from the age-old film of, of human history. And so we need God's help. 
We need grace in, in, on every day, in every community, in every nation, in every community, in every neighborhood, on every block, in every home, in every family, in every relationship. We need grace. God, help us. God, help us. How do we, how do we get to where we need to be? How do we at least begin to bridge the gaps? How do we at least begin to understand? I, th I think you know that the answer is not in violence. For whether the tragic losses of two black men and many other youths carelessly, recklessly, needlessly killed, or whether it's the loss of five police officers assassinated, we all lose. We all grieve. Violence never accomplishes anything. And we know that. We know that. If violence isn't the answer, neither, neither are elections, I'm afraid. Neither are politics and policies and laws. They're good. They can help because they can get laws in place that at least keep us a little bit in check, at least keep us from a little bit of the evil that we are capable of. We must see, though, that not even social action or education or improved living conditions or more money, these things are all needed, but they can't get to the center of our need, can they? They can't get to our heart. A pastor standing up in pontificating or politicians standing up and pontificating not going to fix it not going to fix it the answer and and with with god is my witness the i don't say this glibly and i don't say this flippantly the answer and it's the only answer that is transformative it's the only answer that gets to the heart of it the answer is in capturing the heart of God as, as it is poured out on us in love, capturing God's heart and then manifesting it to others. The answer is in those of us who know the love of God in Jesus Christ. The answer is in those of us who have been blood-bought by Jesus Christ, who have been forgiven by the riches of the grace of God. The answer is for us to choose, to choose, to choose to pursue true, deep, attentive, humble, respectful, repentant, action-taking neighbor love in each other's direction. That is the answer, a love that gets in real close to others, that presses in to know, to get to know real people who really matter, a love that enters so deeply into the moment that it weeps over the sadness and weeps in the sadness of our black brothers and sisters, for they are sad beyond words and weary of the sadness. It is a love with a desire to hear, one that presses in to those we just don't understand, to those who seem most unlike us or most bigoted toward us or afraid of us or angry with us, 
pressing in to find out why they feel the way they feel. A love that will stand and fight together for justice and due process in a world where it seems to so rarely happen. Justice and due process for each man and every woman and every young person, regardless of the color of their skin. A love that stops to, to ponder the fears and the rage of others and cares enough to seek the real reason. What is the real reason? And what are the life experiences that have produced that fear? that have produced that rage without presuming to know the reasons and without judging the reasons when they're given. It is a love that acknowledges that there is reason for fear and there is reason for weariness in waiting for some have been waiting for a very long time for the rain and the showers of justice to fall on a very desolate land. It's a love that overcomes the deep suspicion of others with our own tireless effort that vanquishes the profound doubts that others have about us with an equally profound willingness to step into the shoes to listen and to learn and to lament with others. We, we each need a heart that is so affected by the love of God in Christ that we refuse to answer anger for anger. We refuse to answer stereotype for stereotype. We refuse to answer prejudice with prejudice and, and violence with violence. We need a love that joins our hearts in crying for justice and longing for peace and aching for love love for one another. And we need, we need a love that looks into every single face we see. Every face we see. And sees in the eyes of every human being we look at an image bearer of God who is an individual man, woman, young person, child, created with distinctive individuality and desires and goals and dreams and faith and hopes and ambitions and needs and hurts and cost to life. And we need to respect and value and cherish and listen and learn and love from each one. From each one. We need the heart of God. Jonah, Jonah just didn't get it. Worse than that. I mean, it's, you read the book, right? You, you just, it, it's, Jonah, what are you thinking, man? What are you thinking? What is the matter with you? But the, the heart of racism was so strong within him that it wouldn't loosen. The, the only way you can change a racist heart is by having a new heart. The heart of God. It's the only way. The only way to overcome racism, the only way to 
to change a racist heart is by having a new heart planted within. So that heart has to be like God. So what is God's heart like? Well, just listen as I, as I quickly run through it here in the book of Jonah. God, in his heart, is eager to forgive you and your neighbor. God is eager to forgive. In chapter two, uh, 4 and verse 2, what, is, what does Jonah say? He says to God, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah says, God, I knew you were like this. I knew you were eager to forgive. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were gracious. I knew you would forgive these people. I knew it. That's why I didn't want to do it. But he was right. That is what God is like. God is eager to forgive us. He is willing to forgive us. He is waiting to forgive us. He is a God who pities us. He is a God who has compassion on us. Now, of course, this assumes that we know we need to be forgiven. That's the problem with most people, right? They don't think they need to be forgiven. Well, we do. Most people sit around worrying that God is going to be unfair with them. Friends, you don't have to worry about God being unfair. It's not in his nature to be unfair. A dog could fly before God could be unfair. God can't be unfair. What you have to worry about is God being fair. What you and I have to worry about is God giving us what we deserve. What we have to worry about is getting what is coming to us. Because you look in the mirror, I look in the mirror, and I see a sinner. Now, a sinner saved by grace in Jesus Christ, destined for glory. But take Jesus out of that picture, I see a sinner. I see guilt. I see shame. I, need, I see worthy of death. But God is eager to forgive. God is willing to forgive. God stands poised to forgive. God is eager to forgive you. He's eager to forgive your neighbor, whoever he or she is, whatever he or she is like. God shares this eagerness to forgive equally with all of us. That's part one of the heart of God that we need to have. Part two, God is not a racist toward any of your neighbors. God doesn't favor one over the other. That's the point of this book. That's the point of it. That's the point of it. The point of this is, Jonah, I love all peoples. Jonah, you're not special. You are, if you're one of mine, but so are they. You're not different. You're not better. You're not more loved. God is no respecter of persons. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You want to know how eager God is to forgive? He gave his son to make it possible to forgive you. He said, the sins have to be punished. The guilt has to be atoned for. I don't want to damn them. I don't want to condemn them. I don't want them to die. I will go in their place. I will bear their punishment. I will take the heat. I will take the cross. I will experience the equivalent of hell 
so that they don't have to. So that all they have to do is repent and believe in Jesus and they'll be forgiven, forgiven forever. And that's for everybody who will repent and believe. Everyone in this room, it doesn't matter where you're from. We've got 15 to 20 different ethnicities in Risen Hope Church. It doesn't matter. You're all welcome here because God welcomes you. And because God offers his mercy and his grace to all of us. Every tribe, every tongue, every language on the face of the earth is going to be represented in heaven singing, Hallelujah, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And friends, uh, that, that makes racism look really ugly, doesn't it? This is the heart of God. He is eager to forgive you and your neighbor. He is not a racist toward any of your neighbors. He is a God. He's a God who loves your neighbor's children. I want, you, I want you to hear this one. He's a God who loves your neighbor's children. You say, Tim, where do you get that? I get it from the last verse of the book. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let me just pause. If, you'd never, if you thought that God got, never got sarcastic, uh, I beg to differ. There are different parts in the Bible where God is pretty sarcastic. This is one of them. The last phrase here, the last phrase here, you know, there's much cattle in Nineveh. You know, it's like God is saying to, to Jonah, um, you care more about your plant than you do about people. Um, so shouldn't I pity the people? You know, and, and shouldn't I pity the very young people, those, the little children who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand? And, and Jonah, if you're not concerned about people, how about the cattle? What about the cows? You know, who's going to save the cows? See what God's doing. He's, he's pointing out the evil absurdity of his racism, of his bigotry, of his heartlessness for his neighbors. But in doing that, what does he say? Should I not have compassion on all the little children. You know, I think about it sometimes. I say, you know, if I can't love my neighbor who's an adult for whatever the reason, well, I should love him at least for his children's sake. If I, if, here's a motivation to witness. Motivation for the kid, uh, witness for the kid's sake. For the children's sake, the children who are without Christ, the children who are lost, the children who are growing up clueless in this generation, witness and tell people about Jesus for the kids' sake. So God is saying, I love children. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said. Let them come to me. There's so much more here. Let me just say this. God issues a warning, but his warning is a mercy. It's a mercy. 
Now, if you ever thought about it, the fact that God, that there's punishment for sin shouldn't surprise us. In a just and moral universe, there better be punishment for sin. There better be justice someday, or else a whole lot of evil is going to go unfixed. The fact that there's punishment for sin is logical, rational, and moral. It needs to be. But what doesn't need to be is warning about the punishment. The warning is mercy. You read, repent, for in 40 days you're going to be overthrown. And you say, ooh, fire, brimstone, angry God. No, merciful, kind, patient God. Because he could have done it on the first day and been just. But he says, no, I'm going to warn the people. Because I love the people. And I want to draw them with warnings into my mercy and into my grace. And it happened here. And so, so we have a God who warns in order to show mercy. And then a God, a God who relents as soon as they repent. And if you're here this morning and have never repented, never turned in faith to Christ, here's the promise of God. Repent and he will relent. You repent of your sin and God will forgive you your sin. You came in a condemned, on your way to hell sinner. You leave a forgiven, justified, on your way to heaven saint. That's how it works. That's the mercy of God. That's the mercy of God. God loves you and your neighbor. God is eager to forgive you and your neighbor. God is ready to relent as soon as you repent. But let me give you one last thought as we close here this morning. God not only saves neighbors, he saves neighborhoods. Nineveh, the city, was saved. Likely 600,000 people in Nineveh at that time, 120,000 little toddlers running around. Probably the biggest spiritual revival and conversion account in history. God saved a whole city. Do you believe God can do that today? Do, do you believe that God can transform a neighborhood? Do you, do you believe that God can transform your neighborhood? Do you, do you believe God can transform your family, your house, your block, your neighborhood? Do you believe in the power of the gospel? No. Do you believe in the power of a God? Jonah's God is still alive today. Do you believe in the power of that God to transform Drexel Hill, to transform Upper Darby, to transform Havertown, to transform Philadelphia? Do you believe God can do this today? I do. I do. It, and, and think about it. God did it through one reluctant racist prophet. What would happen if our churches, full of the love of Christ, if our churches having received the heart of God and the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the spirit of God and the power of God. What would happen if our churches, if this church alone, look around, I don't know how many people here, a lot of people here. We're going to have to move. It's full. 
you know, so, what, what, what would happen if right here each one of us decided from this day forward I'm going to live out the heart of God. A heart that is eager to forgive my neighbors. A heart that loves every neighbor without partiality. A heart that is willing to forgive, willing to love, willing to serve, willing to understand. Brothers and sisters, what would happen if right now, right here, realizing that we cannot change our world, but we can change ourselves, and we can change our families and our neighbors and our communities. What, what would happen if, if we set up, Dr. King spoke of a table of brotherhood, if we set up tables of brotherhood, I, I believe that in the design of God there are few things more healing, more relationship deepening than a shared meal. sitting around a table together. Can I encourage us maybe to stop reading all the articles, all the blog posts, all the news reports, and instead invite somebody over for dinner. Let's open our homes to one another and share our food and then linger to listen and labor to learn and then learn to lament and to laugh in harmony with one another. Let us greet one another, no matter what our color or culture, with a brother's firm hand and a sister's gentle kiss. Let us receive one another with no preconceived stereotypes or assumptions, treating each man, each woman, each child as the unique expression of the image of God that he or she is meant to be. Let us, as those who have been welcomed freely and generously, freely and generously into the Father's house, let us welcome into our homes every shade of humanity with willing heart and open mind and honest intent. Let us, let us break the bread of fellowship together. Let us drink the wine of grace in each other's homes, around each other's tables. And there let us sit and let us stay until the darkness gives way to light until ignorance is swallowed up in understanding, until distrust yields to hope, and until we become what we are, one in Christ. And as the peace begins to rule in our hearts individually, let us strengthen it and establish it in the church with all of its 
variegated and multicolored diversity. Let us as a church be a safe place. Let us be a true haven. Let us be a comforting place. Let us be a home for all kinds of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ. We won't always agree. I don't agree with myself. There's no way we're going to always agree on everything. You can't have 15 different cultures in one congregation and have agreement on preferences and styles and everything else. We may not agree, but let's be a place where differences are not merely tolerated, they are celebrated. And that's not just a nice sounding phrase. I, that's a commitment we have to make. Where differences, not just tolerated, they're celebrated. Where diversity is not merely permitted, it's praised. It's gloried in. Where tears and fears are comforted, not corrected. Where disagreements are not run from in fear, but are leaned into and discussed and understood to make us all the better, to make us all the wiser, to make us all the stronger, to make us all the more effective in mission, the, the, to make us all the more like Christ. Amen. The more like Christ. And then, then, and with this I close, with peace in our hearts, with, with love in our spirits, with, with unity down into our bones, and with steel in our spines. Let's step outside the church into the community. And let's start talking the love of God in Christ to everyone we meet. And let's see what happens to Drexel Hill and Upper Darby and Philadelphia and beyond. Oh, Lord, come. Oh, Lord, come. We, we need you, Lord. Keep us from the Jonah heart. Give us your heart, O oh Lord. Fill us with humility, with grace, with wisdom, with discernment, with confession, with forgiveness. Fill us with your heart, O oh Lord. In this moment, in this place, in these people, for your glory. Please, O oh Lord, come. Baptize us again in love for one another that the world may know, that the world may know that we are yours. To your glory we pray. Amen.